All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sundays in July at Grace Church. It's, uh, it's got to be one of my favorite times of year at Grace Community Church to have Sundays in July. Uh, excited for all of you to be here for uh, this morning. Excited also for you this month to have the opportunity to kind of mingle with people that you don't normally mingle with, unless you're sitting only with people from your <laughs> fellowship group. <laughs> um, but no, this is, this is a really special time in the life of, of Grace Church, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to have an opportunity to speak to you this morning. And I wanted to take this opportunity to speak to you on Paradise Restored, the Christian hope of heaven. And to begin that, um, I want to look at two passages of Scripture, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. But I, I want us to begin at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2. And then we're going to flip all the way over to the very last chapter of Scripture, Revelation 22, and just read several verses from these passages of Scripture. So beginning in Genesis chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 8, and I want you to notice how the Bible opens and closes, speaking about a garden. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground for the I'm sorry, and out of the ground the Lord God made up to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Uh, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Thanks, Joey. Now to flip over to the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. And we'll read the first five verses of this concluding chapter. John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray and ask him to be with us as we open his word. Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to, to open your word, your revelation to us, to hear of of your own mind to us, your creatures. Lord, help us to have understanding, help us to have insight. And ultimately, Lord, give us all a perspective of heaven that would provide hope 
for our lives in this dark and broken world. Help us to set our gaze on Christ and the glory that is to be ours for those of us who know him and love him. Be with us now, I pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, John Milton is considered by many to be the greatest English author to ever live. It shouldn't surprise us that his masterpiece, Paradise Lost, is considered to be one of the greatest works of literature ever written. It took him over six years to write Paradise Lost. Uh, It's comprised of poetry. It's a 10-book poem with over 10,000 lines of poetry. Milton really labored over this work. The, The work itself recounts the journey that Satan took after his fall from heaven. He finds himself entering God's material new world and going right to the Garden of Eden. There, many of us know the story. He seduces Eve, and Adam quickly follows, and sin enters God's paradise, as well as shame, guilt, and fear. It's a really uh, remarkable work uh, to read, Milton's Paradise Lost. Obviously, he takes uh, some poetic license with the biblical story, uh, but, but Milton was, was seeking to vividly portray just what happened when mankind was seduced by Satan and fell in the garden. In a particularly uh, gripping section, he, he recounts a perspective we maybe often don't think about where after Adam and Eve fall, Satan returns to his devils bragging. And the devils around him praising Satan for his accomplishment of, of ushering evil into God's paradise on earth. L- listen to how uh, Satan rejoices in that moment, according to Milton. Amply have merited of me, remember this is 17th century English, so you and the King James will be right at home. Amply have merited of me all of the infernal empire that so near heaven's door triumphal with triumphal act have met, mine with his glorious work. Satan saying, my glorious work having met with God's glorious work. And I have made one realm, hell and this world. One realm, one continent of easy thoroughfare. What he's saying is that he's made a highway from from hell into God's new world. And paradise has been lost, and Satan has dominion. Of course, we know what follows. Adam and Eve are condemned to exile from out of the garden. And in Milton's Paradise Lost, Michael the angel comes to escort Adam and Eve out. But before he does, he gives Adam a survey of what's coming next. He he shows him, almost like a preview of a movie, that Cain would kill Abel. He, he shows him that the, the, the disease would, would enter this world and start wreaking havoc amongst mankind. He shows him murder and, and idolatry, war, death, and old age. He shows him the, the worldwide flood. Adam could hardly comprehend just how horrific this world would be because of his actions. 
I think to put it into a modern context, we see this brokenness all around, don't we? In a moment like walking through a a children's hospital, we're reminded of just how devastating the fallenness of mankind has been. We look around at millions starving, plagued by disease. How many millions have no access to water, are living in poverty? We know that this world is broken and devastated because of sin. Milton himself knew that paradise had been lost. 1652 was a hard year for Milton. In March of 1652, he turned 43 years old and went totally blind. In May, his wife died three days after giving birth to their fourth child. And in June, his third child and his only boy passed away. Paradise had been lost indeed. This week, I was uh, speaking at a high school summer camp in North Carolina for um, Hickory Bible Church, Adam Ashoff. Maybe some of you remember Adam. And a little boy came up to me after one of the sessions, 11 years old, cutest little boy, blonde hair, blue eyes, and asked if he could speak to me. So we arranged a time the next morning, and I was thinking, what is this little boy going to, on the verge of tears, going to want to talk to me about? And we sat down at the cafe. Um, I was grateful for an excuse not to eat the cafe breakfast at summer camp. And this little boy proceeded to tell me about um, his parents getting a divorce and his dad going into drunken um, fits of rage, him and his little sister running from their dad. He recounted to me in vivid detail the moment that his parents told them they were getting divorced. They called him into the living room, sat them down on the couch, him and his sister said, kids, we're getting a divorce, and, and he thought it was a prank. And when they said, no, this is real, he, he said, I couldn't stop crying and pleading with them, please don't do this. It's interesting because he wanted my advice. He wanted my advice on what he should do when his father gets violent and him and his sister lock themselves in their bedroom and his father will beat down the door in a drunken rage. And he said, I don't want to tell anyone because that will give my mom an excuse to have 100% custody and I want to see my dad. And I just sat there as this little 11-year-old boy was, was actually telling me he would rather be, be hit by his father than not see his daddy. And I just couldn't help but feel the brokenness of this world. It wasn't designed that way for us to endure that. And I know for each of you in this room, uh, you could sit and recount the brokenness that you've experienced. It's not only on the headlines, it's not only in the geopolitical news, Um, you each have experienced pain and emptiness, agony, depression, sin, you've experienced the brokenness of paradise lost. But here's something that Milton had, which I want to give each of us this morning, and it's hope. In this masterpiece of Paradise Lost, just before they are banished, Michael the archangel tells Adam of a theme that will emerge throughout the rest of human history, that of redemption. He tells him that there is coming a redeemer 
to fix this broken world. And Adam actually responds in hope. Seeing the possibility that an even greater good would come in in this Redeemer coming and restoring humanity, Adam rejoices in hope. And friends, that's my goal this morning, that we as Christians must have hope. Hope that one day it won't be this way. One day the curse will be reversed and devastation will be overcome and paradise will be restored and we will live eternally with God. Now, the Bible presents this hope to us as the hope of heaven. And so our theme this morning will be the subject of heaven. Now, I know there are many misconceptions about heaven that um, we've all probably entertained at one point or another. I know my audience. This is Grace Community Church, faithfully taught for many years. And so I don't think many of you think heaven's going to be us floating on a cloud with little naked babies, you know, shooting darts at people. Um, but, but we are guilty of misconceptions with heaven. And I want us to examine those misconceptions this morning and and maybe have some of those exposed. Some misconceptions or a very basic one is often just practically, not even theologically, but just practically thinking about heaven as a merely future reality. And therefore we often consider heaven to be a contemplation for the dying. So when you visit your friend in hospital, you bring a contemplation on heaven. Now that's a good thing, but I want us to discover that that the hope of heaven is for us today and ought to transform our everyday experience in this broken world. Heaven is the hope of paradise restored. And I want you to discover that. Some of you, I want to remind you of that hope because you, you have that hope in your soul. And maybe I, I, this will help to bring it up to the surface of your mind and, and have you leave here contemplating that hope with a greater surety and, and, and joy. Others in this room, maybe you've never known that hope. Maybe you are going through this life without the hope of paradise restored. And so your hope is in what this world has to offer you alone. Well, I would like to introduce the hope of heaven to you for the first time then, if that's the case. Uh, We're going to have three simple points we'll look at this morning, um, all revolving around the restoration of heaven and this this broken world. Um, Heaven begins when you meet Jesus, point number one. We'll look secondly, heaven continues when you die. And thirdly, heaven is complete when you enter the eternal state. So let's consider uh, point number one, heaven begins when you meet Jesus. You know, the greatest tragedy of paradise lost in the Garden of Eden was mankind's relationship with God being shattered. All of the blessings that came from knowing God and being in relationship with him were then cut off as God removed himself and his favorable presence from Adam and Eve. And and we feel this estrangement from God. Have you ever thought about religion? Um, Religion in its essence is humankind trying to reconnect with its creator. It's mankind trying to find a way back to God because we know that we were made to enjoy God and have relationship with our creator, but that 
relationship has been disconnected. And this really truly is the greatest tragedy of paradise lost. Because the greatest delight of heaven isn't the gifts, but the one who gives them. And what we discover in scripture teaching us about heaven is that God is rebuilding paradise, restoring things to the way they were meant to be. In other words, he's bringing us back to himself. And friends, that happens in stages. This is heaven in stages, which is why heaven begins when you meet Jesus Christ. It's building a bridge back to God. If you remember Isaiah 59, we hear God say to uh, the people of Israel, he says, your iniquities or your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Contrast that with God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden hearing them, speaking to them, enjoying them. And when sin enters, this relationship between God and man is absolutely shattered. And so we see in God's mercy, as Michael the archangel told Adam in Milton's Paradise Lost, um, a redeemer is coming. And what this redeemer will do is is seek to re-engage mankind with their creator. We see this in the Old Testament sacrificial system, don't we? It's interesting, we, we can be so um, self-centered in our view of God and think we actually do pursue God. If you read the Bible, once mankind's relationship with God is broken in the garden, mankind is on a marathon running away from him, just in their own self-pursuits. And there's, for hundreds of years, absolute silence from God until... He speaks to his chosen prophets. And he actually comes down to Abraham and tells him of a nation he will make. And this this sun-worshiping pagan, Abraham, is introduced to Yahweh, the God of the universe. And so you see that promise being fulfilled in the nation of Israel. And what do we see there? God pursuing mankind, restoring relationship with humanity. And so he sets up a way for a holy God to interact with an unholy people. We see the sacrificial system. Okay, I, I want to dwell amongst you, Israel, but I can't because you're broken. You're wicked and rebellious. So in my mercy, I'll make a way for us to have relationship. Here's how you go about it. And and he introduces the, the brutal sacrificial system, an incessant reminder of their brokenness. But a way had been made, a bridge between God and man. Ultimately, friends, as New Covenant believers, we know that Jesus Christ came And how does John introduce him the first day he sees him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The ultimate ultimate sacrifice coming to make a way for mankind to be restored in relationship to their creator. And this is where paradise begins to be restored. Turn with me to John chapter 17. I want to show you 
this reality from the lips of our Lord. In John chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says in verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, look at what he's giving, eternal life. He's conquering death. But, but we know that life is not eternal. That's one of the very present realities in a post-fall world, that upon Adam and Eve eating of the fruit in the garden, God cursed this world with death, promising them in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. But Jesus here says, this is eternal life. He is restoring something that was lost in the garden of Eden. How is he restoring it? Well, notice what he says. This is eternal life that they know you. Not an intellectual facts-based informational knowledge merely, but the personal knowing of God the Father and Christ his Son. An intimate knowledge that only comes in relationship. Look at verse 25 of chapter 17. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have sent me. The knowledge of God that Jesus is speaking here is of the same intimacy that he himself knows with his father. This is the intimacy and knowledge of relationship. And so friends, what we see is that in salvation, in coming to know Christ in an intimate relationship, rebellion is overturned in repentance. The rebellion of Eden is overturned in salvation. And death itself is overturned in union with Jesus Christ. What happens in salvation is that the brokenness of your soul is transformed. You are no longer an enemy and a rebel. You become a friend and a son. And here's what's beautiful. The rebellion that began in Eden, this rejection of God and his sovereign ownership over our lives is, is broken and in a very real sense, Edenic blessings begin to flow. Turn with me quickly to Galatians chapter 5. There's actually a restoration of blessing that was lost in the garden. In Galatians chapter 5, we have that famous passage about the fruit of the Spirit. And beginning in verse 16, we see very much what... Um, the result of sin in this world is the desires of the flesh waging against the spirit. And what are the desires of the flesh as evidenced in our actions? Well, sexual morality, verse 19, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, 
dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, friends, that's, that's a pretty great description of our world, isn't it? Even as I speak to that little 11-year-old boy, that's his experience, just 11 years into this world, brokenness and pain. But in conversion, in this meeting of Jesus Christ through the power of regeneration, whereby the Spirit of God enters the soul of man and regenerates or recreates, what begins to flow? Well, look in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What characterized our walk with the Lord and with each other before the fall begins to re-emerge in our lives when you meet Jesus Christ. Now, there's application for us here individually, but also corporately. So individually, personally, we begin to enjoy the, the love of God and the peace of forgiveness and joy in the spirit, um, the joy inexpressible and full of glory. Christian, um, you've experienced that when in the midst of brokenness in this world, deep down, you've had this sense of peace as Christ has guarded your heart and mind. That, that's a little bit of paradise being restored, even in the midst of brokenness. But friends, we experience that corporately as well in the church. One of my favorite passages describing the church is 1 John chapter 4. We don't have to turn there now, but, but just take note of it and, and go and read 1 John 4 as you're thinking of the church. And um, more than any other section in scripture, that beautiful word love is repeated. Something like 16 or 17 times in that chapter. As John describes the church as a world of love. A world that is that is. Uh, an upside down kingdom that is counterintuitive to the world we experience outside of the church full of full of hatred and bitterness and anger and and ethnic elitism and social pride and and the 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 world of corporate greed and and doing anything you need to survive you enter the church and you discover it's a place where you're not measured on the merits of of what's in your bank account or, or the color of your skin or the culture you're familiar with or, or your last name or the job you have or what part of town you live in. You, but you're treated as one made in the image of God, bought by the precious blood of Christ. And there's a joy and there's a peace and there's a unity. And haven't you experienced, Christian, that, that moment where Maybe it's late on a Sunday night and you're hanging with your friends or you get back from Bible study and you get in the car and you're, you and your wife look at each other. And Haven't you experienced those moments where you just have felt this is how it was supposed to be? This is how humans were, were meant to engage one another and to love one another. Well, because, friends, in the gospel, what Jesus Christ is doing in your soul and then in the body of the church is, is overturning the curse of this broken world, restoring us to paradise. 
Now, even these are mere inklings of Eden because though we start to feel peace and love in our souls, we're still broken and sin-filled. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Because he was burdened, we still have our bodies, we still sin, and the earth is still cursed. But friends, meeting Jesus is the first stage of restoration. Heaven begins the moment you meet him. Now, I think that's where some of us do have a misconception. Thinking heaven is only future and one day you'll get it. But my friend, if you haven't experienced heaven today in meeting and knowing and loving Christ, you cannot expect it tomorrow. Heaven always begins in this life, meeting the person of Christ. But secondly, heaven continues when you die. And in death, another dimension of Edenic paradise is realized. No more sin. When we die, our souls are disconnected from our bodies and we are ushered into a state of being with God without these sin-filled bodies. And that, my friends, will be paradise. You think of Christ on the cross next to that repentant thief. And what does he promise him in Luke 23? Today you will be with me in paradise. At death, we will meet, be with Jesus Christ. This was uh, Paul's hope when he write, wrote to the Philippians and says, in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I sh- shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. At death, heaven continues in that the Lord rescues us from this broken world including the brokenness of your own body and soul, the the sin-filled tendency of your own heart. You will be ripped away from the brokenness of this fallen world and enter paradise. No more temptation, no more sin. You are with Jesus. And yet there's something incomplete even then. We're away from our bodies. We've escaped the physical But friends, is that how God ultimately designed paradise to be? Eden was a spiritual delight as well as a physical delight. I think some of us can sadly um, look at Christian maturity as rising above the physical. So when I get to a place where I am not entertained by the frivolities of this world, and when I really don't care what I eat or, um, or, or pursuing any form of entertainment, I've reached this place of spiritual maturation because I'm above the, the physical world, these physical elements, and I'm yearning for heaven to be apart from this body to be with Christ. Well, friends, yes, that, that is paradise to be set free from the brokenness of this world, but, but it is not 
spiritual maturity to reject the creation, which, remember, God calls good. Remember, after making all of Eden, every element that was created, God looks at it and says, this is good. And even in its fallen state, creation still is good. It's broken, but it's good. In fact, if we allow ourselves that mindset of rejecting the physical, we're we're getting actually further away from spiritual maturity and could even be flirting with spiritual heresy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. In those final days, many will come along preaching demonic heresies and some will depart from the faith following those teachings of demons by liars whose consciences are seared. And you say, Paul, what are those demonic teachings? And he says, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. Interesting. They forbid the enjoyment of physical relationship in the bond of marriage. And they look at certain foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving and say, no, you're more spiritual without it. The the world that God has made is a delight and it's to be received and enjoyed. And yet it's broken. The physical is broken. And so in furthering to counteract the brokenness of this world, paradise continues when we escape this brokenness and are brought into a realm of sweet communion with God in heaven. Now, what theologians call this intermediate state of when you are released from your body and with Christ in glory, um, we don't know everything about it. We do know that it's conscious In Revelation chapter 6, we're told about the souls who are under the altar looking at the world and asking God, when will you finally judge the world? A fascinating little glimpse into heaven. John says, I saw the souls under the altar. What does a soul look like under an altar? (laughs) But we know there's consciousness There's awareness of even the world in that state. And it is paradise. Jesus told the thief that. And it is sin-free. But other than that, we don't know much. We can speculate, but paradise is being restored. And yet, it's not complete. Friends, it's not complete. There is a final stage of the restoration of paradise. This is the third point. Heaven is complete in the eternal state. And this stage is one that encompasses every element of brokenness. Paradise in all of its parts, spiritual and physical, was lost. Which means for God to vindicate his glory and restore paradise fully, the physical must also be redeemed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Paul, who, who we'll, we'll see uh, in a moment, was very much acquainted with the brokenness of this world. Had his sights set on future glory. And he writes these words in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits 
with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The creation itself feels the agony of the brokenness and the, the lostness of what was meant to be paradise. Futility and brokenness, bondage to corruption. Look at that phrase in verse 21, bondage to corruption. What a, what a perfect phrase for this world. In bondage to corruption. My wife and I just um, started a, a remodel of our backyard. And for the last couple of weeks, we just tried to finish our little patio. And um, the previous owners didn't have kids, so they had decomposed granite for the backyard, which is okay. But when you have kids, it gets messy. So we wanted grass. So we, we put grass in. It's beautiful and perfect and green and lush. And we're watering it. But it's in Santa Clarita. So one day it's like 72 degrees and cloudy. And then all of a sudden, 104. And I'm looking at this grass as it's like withering and shriveling, like pumping the water on if I could do it anymore. Like I'm thinking, should I get buckets and just start dumping water? How do I, how do I get this brand new grass to, to dig deep and just don't die? <laughs> but, but that's our world, isn't it? I mean, you get something brand new, and then you brand new truck, and then dink, there's a dent. I mean, really, this, this world is in bondage to corruption. Have you ever thought about the physical realm this way? That it's fighting against you? Just leave it alone and see what it does, and it will overtake you. I mean, you are constantly fighting against this material world pushing it back, trying to keep the, the, the roots from, from uprooting the, the, the walls and the, the vines off the side of the house and the bugs. And you're tr- constantly in a warfare as it's, as it's trying to destroy you. Even creation knows there's something broken. There's this, this inherent battle between man and earth. And Paul writes of that as he considers the sufferings of this present time. Glory is coming, but he looks at the earth and says the earth itself groans, longing to be restored, set free from its bondage to corruption. And friends, that freedom is coming. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 
I would apologize for turning you to all these verses, but you go to Grace Church, so you're fine. (laughs) Relax. (laughs) Second Peter chapter three, Peter unfolds the very dramatic way in which restoration is going to take place. Freedom is coming from this corruption and watch how it's introduced. Verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, creation will be set free as God sets on fire the the heavens and the earth to restore a new heavens and a new earth where freedom will finally be obtained. Notice that line in which righteousness dwells, all brokenness banished, paradise restored. And just keep turning with me further in your Bibles to Revelation 21 we see a vivid description of what this new heavens and new earth will look like. There's coming a day when when everything will be made right and it's described in vivid detail. Listen to this, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Look over at chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, notice the curse is overcome. Tears, pain, and death gone. Flowing blessings. It sounds like Eden, doesn't it? 
But in fact, friends, the, the blessings will flow sweeter than that in Eden. The eternal garden will outshine and outbless even the Edenic garden. In Eden, there was still the need for the sun to light the earth because although God dwelled with man in fellowship, he was not there in the fullness of his presence. But did you hear it in the descriptions of Revelation 21 and 22? In the eternal state, he is the blazing sun. Friends, this is known as the beatific vision. That unmediated and unprecedented apprehension of the beauty of God. You remember Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Show me your glory. And God somewhat mysteriously gives him a glimpse of his glory, though behind a rock and hidden. And he certainly does not see God's face. It's described as his backside. And and in some way, Moses catches a glimpse of his glory. Coming down the mountain, the text in Exodus says, the skin of his face shone. But here in Revelation 21 and 22, friends, look at 21 verse 3 again. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Again, in chapter 22, he describes, um, we see in verse five, night will be no more, no need of light, of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. Oh, friends, if Moses' face shone at just a glimpse of something of the glory of God, what will our faces shine like in glory? you realize that your eternal destiny is to see God face to face, not in a mirror dimly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but then face to face in glory. And the result will be an eternal increase of joy, worship, and delight. One of my favorite descriptions of the eternal state comes in Zechariah chapter 8. Because I had to do, uh, I was assigned to do this sermon on play maybe a month ago. Because in Crossroads, we did a little series before summer on work, play, and rest. And so I'm going, where's play in the Bible? So I'm trying to scour the pages to find play. And what I discovered was really beautiful and and has imprinted itself on my heart as one of my most favorite descriptions of the eternal state. Because in Zechariah chapter 8, Yahweh himself describes this, this restored paradise as a place where children laugh and play in the streets. But he doesn't only say that. He then says, and the righteous will look at that and rejoice and sing. So the redeemed will see the, the, the banishment of brokenness and children playing with, with no guardians and no protections, laughing in the street, and the righteous will rejoice. And then Yahweh himself says, will I not look upon this and rejoice? The coming kingdom of play, the coming kingdom of joy, 
which is a restoration of, of how God designed this world in the first place. Eden wasn't a cement block where, where there was a, a line for food over there and you, know, you sleep over here. No, Eden was this resplendent paradise teeming with, with colors and creativity, wasn't it? As taste buds were bursting off the tongues of Adam and Eve, as they enjoyed all of God's creation, laughing in fellowship and enjoyment. Sin has devastated that, but sin will not win. And God will restore paradise to be what it was always designed to be. And here's something Eden never had. No chance for anyone to ever write another poem called Paradise Lost. In Eden, there was an opportunity for Satan to invade. In Eden, there was the opportunity for an infiltrator. Yes, Milton's poetry is metaphor and hyperbole with plenty of poetic license, but it's true, Satan had access. Evil could touch down in Eden, but in the eternal garden, no access. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And the expanse of your love and delight will always increase. Jonathan Edwards, who's written a lot on heaven, writes this. What a haven of rest to enter. After having passed through the storms and tempests of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and malice and scorn and contempt and contention and vice are as waves of a restless ocean always rolling and often dashed about in violence and fury. Oh, what joy will be there springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through their wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this. Here is joy unspeakable indeed and full of glory, joy that is humble, holy, enrapturing, and divine in its perfection. Heaven culminates in the eternal state. In 1646, uh, Richard Baxter was 31 years old and he got sick forced him to spend several months in a house far from his home and family, alone. His condition, whatever the sickness was, was so grave that he was sentenced to death by the physicians. And so with his life ebbing away, he thought about heaven. I began to contemplate, he writes, more seriously on the everlasting rest which I apprehended myself to be just on the borders of. As he lay there alone, sentenced to death, he wrote down his reflections and it became a book. A book that was the first of 140 that he would write over the next five decades of life. <laughs> he thought heaven was a meditation for the dying. What he discovered is that it transformed his life. My friends, we need to set our gaze on heaven today. As we close, I want to recount the life of the Apostle Paul. And you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's life was a life full of pain. 
in 2 Corinthians 11, you don't have to turn there, but he, he chronicles that brokenness that he experienced, the 40 lashes, five times beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. I mean, I just think of the, the chronic headaches this guy had to have. You realize in Lystra, he was stoned to death. I think that's a, a resurrection from the dead we can overlook. He dragged him out of the city as dead. And when the other apostles go to him to collect his body, he gets up. It's like, all right, where are we going? And he's just, he's just alive after being stoned. You know, uh, it's easy for us when we talk about someone like Paul to talk about the physical persecutions um, and sufferings, but I don't think we relate to that as much in, in the West, in America, in our time right now. I think when cancer strikes, you, you do, you feel it. But I think for Paul, he even describes his sufferings um, as the most agonizing of which were, were the internal sufferings. You remember he was rejected by his entire community and family and loved ones to the point where his fellow Jews made oaths to not eat until they had killed him. I mean, this is broken relationship to the max. And at the end of his description in 2 Corinthians 11 of all his sufferings, he says, and on top of this, the constant daily anxiety I have for all the churches. Paul was a man acquainted with brokenness, which ought to make these words all the more stunning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay, the treasure of the gospel, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, in the light of heaven, Paul's troubles became so small. They became light and momentary when they were anything but light and momentary. They were long, decades long. But notice, the hope of heaven made his life so significant. 
as he looked to the eternal glory, the eternal glory that comes in knowing Christ and being reacquainted with your creator, the one who will banish all of brokenness in this world and restore us to a place of paradise as it was designed to be. The agonies of this present world fluttered away as light and momentary when Paul began to wrap his mind around the thought of an eternal garden. And my friends, so will yours. If you don't know this hope, there's only one way to know it. It begins by meeting Jesus. Paul met him on the Damascus Road. You can meet him in T360. And he will introduce paradise for you. You'll get a taste of it today. Just with the the peace overcoming the brokenness of your soul. The joy overcoming the burden. The love that replaces the sorrow and hopelessness. You'll have a taste of it in knowing Christ. And you'll get a greater taste when your soul leaves your body. And friends, it's coming quickly. But the full restoration of this world is coming. Romans 8.25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, be patient. It's coming. The hope of paradise restored. Let's pray. Father, help us to have our sights set on glory despite the brokenness and fallenness of this world, Lord, that can be so distracting, that can get our minds so fixated on on tomorrow and, and what's happening today. Lord, help us to set our eyes daily on the hope that is ours in Christ. And may everyone in this room know paradise restored through a relationship with Jesus Christ, that, that the brokenness that we have experienced would only be light and momentary, and not even worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory to be ours forever and ever as we dwell with you in the new heavens and new earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.